Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up, Hannah Walker-Brown, the multifaceted audio storyteller and writer, discusses her new book, exploring the difficult realities of brain injury and sport. Hannah Walker-Brown is a multi-award-winning audio documentary maker, author, and creative director for Broccoli Productions, a podcast production company founded to address the lack of opportunities for minority talent. In 2019, she created the Audible original podcast, The Beautiful Brain, which is a docuseries about West Bromwich Albion football hero Jeff Astell and the injuries he suffered from repeated head trauma. Hannah's latest book is A Delicate Game, Brain Injury, Sport and Sacrifice, which explores the topic further. Hosting today's discussion is Joey Durso, investigations writer for the sports outlet The Athletic UK. Here's Joey with more. Hannah, welcome. Great to speak to you. So this book, why did you write it and why do you think this is an important issue? Um, Well, you sort of touched on it there. I made the documentary first that came out in 2019 that sort of focused on the Jeff Astle story, the Astle family in particular, but also gave a bit of a background to CTE more generally. And it was doing that and meeting people like Jeff's daughter Dawn that really made me think there was something more here. And I think once you kind of become embedded in the human side of this because I think a lot of people have seen on the news on Twitter this kind of I guess essentially an argument between science and sport should this be banned you're ruining the game we need more research and I think within that kind of back and forth which is important the families and the kind of the human impact was getting lost a little bit and for me I think that's the most important thing in all of this is who is suffering and how can we help them but also how can we protect players in the future so I wanted to take it from that documentary and look across all sport but also bring in other family stories and put them into one place because I felt that would have a real impact so it's interesting because my background isn't science or sport and I don't have a personal connection to this but from doing the work and from meeting these people I just felt very close to it and you know, I don't think you always get to choose what you care about. And now now I'm in, it's very hard to kind of step away. And, you know, yes, it does mean getting to grips with some very complicated science and, you know, which I have done, even the language, um, CTE, like chronic traumatic encephalopathy, like it's very hard to say, and I've been saying it for six years. Um, But again, that was another reason science is exclusive if you have the vocabulary you know what's going on if you don't you're like oh do you know what I don't understand that I'm not going to look so I was like if you can bring it down to a level that everyone gets it people might be compelled to care like I did I suppose yeah so so 
just going back to that, so chronic mm. traumatic encephalopathy. I'll tell you quickly and then <laughs> yeah, think yeah. I've said it right. CTE. So, so what, what, yeah, so what, what, what is it? What does it mean? So it's a neurodegenerative disease that is caused by concussive or subconcussive hits to the head. And I think it's important to essentially let everyone know what those things are. So concussion we've all heard of, it's when we see kind of immediate symptoms. So things like knockout, things like someone stumbling around, dizziness, whereas the subconcussive hits don't cause immediate symptoms. So, you know, you might just carry on playing and there'll be nothing to indicate to either a kind of a medic or someone watching or even to you a lot of the time and CTE can be caused by an accumulation of those hits so that's where things like heading the football come in you know you can head a football and not be knocked out but it is a sub-concussive hit to the brain essentially and so so now this is you know it's not a huge topic I wouldn't say in sport it's not being spoken about in every match but it's certainly there you know concussion substitutes in the Premier League here in the NFL and rugby but presumably 50 years ago nobody was talking about this when when exactly did brain injury become an issue in sport it's that, that term issue is interesting so I think there's two ways to look at it because it has been a health issue since the 20th century since 1928 when it was first kind of spoken about in boxers under the name dementia pugilistica or punch drunk syndrome but also within that discourse like rugby and football were included in scientific papers so this is way back in 1928 i think the issue with sports is more kind of prevalent now and certainly has been building over the last few years and i think largely that is due to well first of all social media because it allows that kind of democratization of communication. So these families that were once sort of on their own can now reach out to each other, research can be shared, information can be shared, they can find each other. And I think that's where, you know, we've reached a pinnacle now with the kind of 150 player strong litigation against rugby. I'd say, you know, 50 years ago, how would they have found each other? So I think that, go on. Could you explain a bit more about that? What exactly is that? Yeah, essentially, I mean, what sort of happened with the NFL and the CTE and concussion litigation. So, you know, you have these players and some as young as kind of 38 who have been diagnosed with dementia, which is, you know, it's absolutely no age to be diagnosed with that disease. And, you know, there has been an argument for a long time that the older players would have perhaps got dementia naturally because they are in that age bracket. But I think there's absolutely no reason why someone at 38 or 40 should be diagnosed with this disease. So, they are taking legal action against the sport and that's led by Welsh professional Alex Popham and Steve Thompson, MBE. And I interviewed Steve for the book and he doesn't remember winning the World Cup. Like he doesn't remember meeting Nelson Mandela. And I think, you know, that it's very hard to get your head around something like that. So, you know, would we see the same thing that happened with the NFL? Perhaps, I think... The narrative certainly shifts when there is money involved, when there is a lawsuit involved. And I think it has been a long time coming. So, you know, this isn't a new phenomenon in terms of the kind of the health issue, but I think it is now an issue for sport in a bigger way than it has been before because people are sort of galvanised and, and have come together. Yeah, so let's talk, we, we spoke about this briefly at the start, but Jeff Astle, so he died in 2002, who's in England, a West Bromwich Albion centre-forward who's 59 years old, and the inquest found out it was an industrial disease which put the issue um, into the spotlight. So can you tell us a bit more about Jeff and what his family went through? Yeah, I mean, it's... It's been sort of two decades of fight by his family. So industrial disease essentially means that his job killed him and his job was football. 
And at the time, he had a diagnosis of dementia, and it was only later, when his brain had been re-examined by Dr Willie Stewart, that CTE was found. But kind of on receiving the news of his death, the PFA and the FA promised the Astor family a kind of 10-year joint study into this. It had already been sort of spoken about the year before, so it was already in the ether, and they promised they'd do it. Essentially, long story short, which you can read about in the book, um, it was discovered by a journalist, Sam Peters, that the study hadn't been done, so the Astors had been waiting for years, really, thinking, you know, it's bad enough that they've lost their dad, their husband, but at least something might be done, and that wasn't, and I think that was really rough on the family. So they started the Justice for Jeff campaign, which just gathered huge momentum across clubs all up and down the country. And I think, you know, for a long time, it was Dawn trying to change this, trying to advocate um, for safety, essentially, as she was kind of hearing from more and more families going through the same thing. Like now, luckily, she isn't alone in that. And there's been a lot of promises made by the PFA and the FA for a dementia fund to kind of help the families and also to assist things moving forward, although that has sort of yet to surface. But, yeah, essentially, you know, Dawn was at the beginning of all of this. And I think what's great to see is that she isn't alone anymore. But it is, you know, 20 years is too long for something to have been done about this. So how's anything changed in the light of Jeff's death and his family's campaign or are we still waiting for those this football still in denial yeah I think we're still waiting for change I mean studies have been done so like Dr Willie Stewart who I mentioned before of the Glasgow um, Brain Research Injury Group did a huge study the field study which essentially found that professional footballers are 3.5 times more likely to have a neurodegenerative disease than the general population so you know that's pretty high (laughs) um, for nothing to have kind of happened immediately I think things are being done like they've addressed um, limiting heading in training but you know it's sort of everyone gives the example of cigarettes you don't know how many cigarettes you need to smoke to get cancer you might never get cancer you could be 10 it could be 10,000 so actually it's not about the quantity and I think you know there's reasons why sport has maybe dragged its feet and not kind of put its hands up because again if you hold yourself accountable you are open to things like litigations and payouts and ultimately kind of tarnishing your name which again isn't good for business and sport is a business and I think that's something that we do need to remember. So in football is it is it purely the heading that that makes a difference you know now the balls are obviously very different presumably back in the 60s and 70s they got full of water and whatever else is it has that changed matters at all or no and the balls are exactly the same weight right oh wow and dr stewart again like he's exceptional if anyone wants to really delve into this outside of the book all the work coming out of glasgow is absolutely brilliant heading but drills so not necessarily within the matches because you know it's not a game played with your head you might get maybe three headers in a match but it's the kind of relentless drills where you're constantly heading that ball and You know, subconcussive hits can include like an elbow to the head. You know, you see clashes sometimes where neither player comes off completely dazed or stumbling around, but there is a collision of sorts. And, you know, there needs to be adequate recovery time rather than just kind of, you know, pushing on, playing through. So, yeah, it is it is prevalent then and it's prevalent now. So they've brought in these concussion subs in the the Premier League. I think about a year or so ago now, do you, do you think that's a good development? Does it go far enough? Is it being well implemented? I think they trialled it. I think it is the right thing to do and to keep doing. I think it needs to be enforced. And I think within that 
recovery time is absolutely essential. I was talking to um, someone the other day and they were like, maybe the teams need to be twice as big. So you do have options. Or I think he said, maybe we need like 60 person teams. And I think the whole thing with this is no one has a definitive answer but what we need to do is keep tackling the question and it's difficult and I guess it's, you know, it's hard for us to be like, we don't know yet on either side. I don't think either side has the answer, but I think things have to be trialled and tested, but whatever is working needs to be enforced rather than, you know, it's up to whoever's there on the day. Yeah. And, you know, your, your book writes a lot about professional athletes, spoken already, but it's also kids too, school kids. So could you tell us a bit about Benjamin and school rugby? Yeah, sure. And I think actually just before I do that, I think that's a really important point is, you know, because what is happening in the professional leagues, and I think we sort of forget this when people are saying, you know, professional players are paid so much, so they know what they've signed up for. But I think we forget that looking at professionals are grassroots and looking at grassroots are kids and kids will, you know, you can tell a kid to do whatever you want, but if it sees its favorite player heading a football, it's gonna head a football. And I said to someone the other day, you know, I um, I have a goddaughter and if you ask her where she's going on holiday, she'll say Tenerife Atoll Protected because she's seen on TV when the insurance claim comes at the end, it says Atoll Protected. So she doesn't know what it means. So I'm like, you know, kids are going to see... I know what it means. Well, yeah. me neither, but she... Like, you Atoll. ask her, and like, Atoll yes. Protected, yeah. So I think what you need to kind of keep in mind is they're going to do it regardless. So they need to set an example in that respect, not just for the kind of the safety of those players, but for grassroots and kids who don't have the best medics in the world on the side of the pitch, who can't take six weeks off work to recover because... You know, it's not their main source of income a lot of the time. But yeah, so back to your question, um, Benjamin Robinson was a 14-year-old schoolboy from Northern Ireland who died after sustaining multiple concussions while playing schoolboy rugby. He wasn't removed from play and ultimately died of second impact syndrome, which is when he has, well, he had one bigger hit which was followed very quickly by another and it was that accumulation in that short amount of time that essentially left him brain dead and I interviewed um, his mother and father for the book and you know essentially there was nothing that day to keep him safe there was no protocol enforced and actually it was his mum who was the only one that was really making any sense on the pitch wanted him off they didn't take him off. She was sort of accused of being dramatic and he died playing rugby. And I think that was sort of described as... He? he was 14 and they uh, there were inquests which are kind of detailed in the book because they wanted to know why he wasn't taken off. If correct protocol had been followed, he was displaying signs of concussion. He was visibly stumbling around. He didn't know what was going on. And yeah, they played him on and... You know, his dad, Peter, does incredible work across the country, Scotland, England, on social media. Um, if it, you've ever seen um, If In Doubt, Sit Them Out, which a lot of players now wear, uh, that's all come from him and the work he's doing is incredible. But when you think that it's, you know, a direct result of losing his son, it's just, I mean, it doesn't even bear thinking about. But they're incredible and what they've done for kind of safety and or what they're trying to do to advocate for safety is unbelievable. I just don't feel like the sport is even meeting them halfway. 
So what are the signs, and I'm sure there are people watching this who are parents or maybe even coaches or, or whatever, what, what are the signs of concussion or brain injury if someone's playing a sports match? I mean, concussion is a brain injury. I think that's important to remember. They're not separate. So, you know, I guess the visible signs, and again, this is where it's tricky because you have sub-concussive hits as well, but, you know, stumbling around, not knowing basic information, like what the match is, what day it is, their name, who they're playing, those sorts of things vomiting there's you know there's hundreds of these things and they can be found online you can look and you can find concussion guidelines anywhere and I think that was one of the issues particularly in Benjamin's case the ref or the coach despite the fact there are no protocols for children specifically but they weren't even aware of the ones for adults which would basically list the symptoms he had and tell them categorically remove him from play so you know, these things are available, but you just have to look for them. And I think therein lies the majority of the problem. So that there aren't sufficient guidelines and protocols at school and junior levels? I don't think so. And I wouldn't say, again, it comes back to this thing of it shouldn't be up to the parents. And essentially, I guess it shouldn't really be up to the school. It needs to come from the government and those things need to be enforced. Because, you know, if a parent says to a kid, don't do that, they're probably still going to do it when they're on the pitch and they're with all their mates and, you know, the thrill of playing a match with all your friends at school, like you can't beat it. But I think these things need to come into force in terms of education and awareness, but also protocol. And that has to be from a higher power than, you know, just a parent saying to their kid, I don't want you to do that anymore. Yeah. And a theme that comes up a lot in your book is this idea of kind of, you know, play on and not wanting to appear weak or disappointing kids by admitting head injury. Do you think this is a big problem? And you can easily see it, you know, if you tell someone the 80th minute of a final that they should come off, they're probably not going to want to. Um, so mm. how, how much of a barrier is that? I think it's a huge barrier. And I, I don't think it's like an exclusive thing to sport either. I think it's a real kind of inherent human instinct that when we get knocked down, we get back up again. I think particularly in men and and this kind of culture of masculinity. And I think, well, in the book, I trace it back to this ideology of um, muscular Christianity, which came into effect after the Industrial Revolution, when it was believed men had become too effeminate, women were kind of rising up, and they were like, no, men must take their rightful place, you know, not just above women, but as leaders on the world stage, but also in warfare. And essentially, through the church, men were kind of funneled into sports like boxing to, you know be more manly. So I think that runs so much deeper than just like play on. I don't know whether it's a trauma response or if it's just become so embedded in who we are. And that's not to say that women don't have it as well, because I think it is inbuilt in everything around us. Even like, you know, you're decorating a house. There is a payoff in overcoming a challenge that feels good. And we know that often compromise involves sacrifice or anything good, we have to kind of sacrifice one thing for another. And there's that phrase, isn't there? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I think that's something, again, perpetuated. We hear it all the time. And yeah, I think a great example of that, actually, Steve Thompson, MBE, who I spoke about earlier, who I interviewed for the book, like he was diagnosed with dementia and probable CTE. And the way he talks about it, like he's kind of accepted it, like it's just another hit and he's ready to walk it off. So I think he took those hits in the game and now he's taking it now. So I think it's just it's just part of us and part of that kind of character and personality. So how, how, how do we get beyond that? How do we get, is it on role models or sports people to put their hands up and say, you know, just walk off the pitch if you have someone like this, it's far more serious than, you know, so I guess sort of playing through the pain barrier is often a source of 
pride to sports people, but you know, I guess this is so different from a sore ankle or you know a muscle injury or all sorts of other injuries in sport. Yeah, and do you know what? Actually, just on that point, I think that this is what makes it so difficult. Is it's we can't see the brain, like we can't see a brain injury. When we see a broken bone or blood, we're like, oh, they're hurt, you know. Whereas the brain, like I always give the example of mindfulness and like meditation. You know, if you go to the gym for three weeks, you can physically see a difference. Whereas mindfulness, you're like, am I doing it right? Like, what's happening? I don't really know. Like, there isn't kind of that immediate feedback and it's not tangible. So I think that's really difficult when we're talking about something like this. So like if we can't see it, we don't know what it feels like. We don't have that kind of visceral reaction. It's not like the crunch of a bone or splurt of blood. That makes it harder to understand. I don't think it should just be left up to the players because also, again, they've signed contracts with people. They can't just walk off the pitch. Like They also need to be able to do that within you know, the wider system of the business that sport is. And it needs to be discussed openly, not just from a sport perspective, but bringing those families in and engaging in a dialogue between the two. But it shouldn't just be left to the players and it shouldn't just be left to those families. Like It's up to sport to really kind of take note, listen and implement those rules. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and on-stage talent. But behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv and if someone say does does get concussed in a football match or anywhere else how long would it take for the brain to recover to be safe to play football again well they say you know everyone is individual but six weeks well okay and if you think that some players are being played six days after you know it's just not okay and also, again, this comes down to contracts. Can a player be out for six weeks? Again, in their mind, does that mean they're then not going to be put forward for other things? You know, there's it's very, very complex. Like, it's not just black and white. 
ban this, don't ban this. You know, there's so many layers within this and I think they all need unpacking. Like, it's going to take work and time. But I think if we don't do it, then... I mean, the problem is already catastrophic. Like, being diagnosed with dementia at 38, like, that's not... That should not be a result of playing a sport. Yeah, I mean, six weeks, that's like, you know, that's longer than the length of the World Cup. Like, you know, if you get one the week before the World Cup and you start World Cup, which would be, I guess, devastating for someone's career. But I suppose the job is to convince people that the, the alternative is a lot worse. Yeah, yeah, and missing, that's it. You know, yeah, and also you're contending with why would you want to sit on the bench? You want to play, right? You don't want to be watching it happen. So you're kind of contending with that, this kind of culture of sport as well, but also like safety has to come first. And again, you have to sort of remember who's watching, you know? those kids that are watching you like and and this is also like commentators for example or the way that language is used so often we hear the term knocks which i think diminishes what's actually happening you know it's it's a blow or it's a brain injury it's not just a little knock cuz i mean i've used this example quite a lot of an egg so you imagine like an egg and the shell is your skull and the yolk is the brain in the middle and every time you take a hit that shakes and if that is repeatedly shaken, I mean, what's happening to that yolk inside? It just absolutely, you know, it, it forms to whatever the shape is inside the skull. And that's ultimately what's happening. So, I mean, it's not a direct parallel at all, but obviously with um, heart problems in football, you had Christian Eriksen, whose life was saved on the pitch and he's now playing again. But now there have been several incidents where fans in football matches have been, um, have had heart attacks or whatever during a match. And, and I think now they just stop the match and run to them. Whereas I think... Five or ten years ago, people would just sort of die in the stands and be pulled out. I mean, there's been a huge cultural shift that it's now very normal. It's happened four or five times in the Premier League this season. The matches have just been stopped for that reason. And there's, you know, defibrillators on the side of the pitch, whatever else. So it just shows that things can move pretty quickly when people realise, you know, hopefully it doesn't take something as serious as someone almost dying. You know, and players have died. You know, Mark Vivian Foe 15 years ago or so died on the pitch. I mean, yeah, you hope it doesn't take that to happen for those sorts of changes to be brought in. I mean, it's really sad, but I think that's what it would take because players are dying off the pitch and I don't know what needs to happen. Like, do they need to be dead at 38 or, you know, a diagnosis, a diagnosis isn't enough right now. So, you know, it's devastating. So what, what, do, you mean, what do you mean by well, that? Well, I mean, you know, there's these players who have got a diagnosis now, but I wonder if it would take someone actually dying on the pitch for it to be kind of accelerated versus this kind of, you know, plodding along slowly which is really sad to think of it like that. Yeah, I mean, we've spoken so much about the sort of negative health consequences of, of sport, and, and I suppose sport in general is brilliant for people's health and exercise and all sorts of health problems are made better by sport. So how do we balance that of encouraging sport and, and wanting people to take exercise while also being taking this issue incredibly seriously without wanting, you know, ruining the game or scaring people off, which I'm sure is the last thing that you or Jeff Astle's family or any of these people want to do. Yeah. But, you know, how do you strike that balance? Sure, yeah. And it's really interesting because no family that I spoke to within this book, even, you know, Peter and Karen, Benjamin's parents who lost their son, like no one wants sport banned. No one wants sport to go away. A lot of people still play sport. They still watch sport. They still enjoy sport. And I think... This idea of it being ruined, you're essentially arguing for players not to be better protected. And I think, you know, you can still have the game everyone loves, but that has to include a well-being for the players because they are essentially what make the game. And again, like no one has the definitive answer, but there are things being done and that can be done to ensure that, yes, we get to enjoy a game, but also people don't get a brain injury. 
And I think that's where we're kind of at now. And and actually, in the last year, I've seen that shift so much. So when I made the documentary in 2019, there wasn't that much going on. And I think people were more inclined to shout about, you know, making the sport soft or ruining the sport. But now people are starting to understand it more as more players are coming out. And also you're seeing people that maybe played at amateur level that are starting to experience some of those things, not necessarily getting a diagnosis, but are like, oh, wait, actually, I've had headaches or I got this from sport or I've had to stop. So I think people are sort of coming around to the idea that it, it isn't that black and white, like I said before, and there there are those levels of nuance that need to be addressed. So, yeah, I'd ask what it was ruining. Is it fact, you know, if you watch rugby matches from the 1970s on those muddy pitches, they're quite skinny guys, a lot of them. Um and now all rugby players are huge, you know, even the sort of scrum half. And they're, they're just clearly, you know, they're, they're professionals in the way they weren't before and they, they spend all week in the gym and they're massive, which presumably makes collisions much worse. Well, much yeah, worse. totally. Someone of that size coming towards you, it doesn't matter what size you are, you know, and just that evolution, it's almost like the evolution of man, but it's in such a short period of time because, like you said, they've gone from, like, super skinny to these, like, gargantuan, almost, like, gladiatorial beings and again there's you know a lot of debate in rugby about tackle height but you know whiplash can also cause brain injury you know if you hit someone low down but the neck whips back and shoots forward that's still going to shake it up so it does again I think everyone's trying to find this like quick fix sort it out now so we can kind of protect the game but I think it's going to take more time than that and I suppose you've got in rugby you've got where people wear literally no protection at all and then American football, where you've got these guys basically in like suits of armor running at each other heads first. I'm not an NFL expert, but they're, they're, people's roles is to literally like headbutt each other at full speed, right? Yeah, and also there's like a really interesting debate that still kind of rages on about um, helmets. Like helmets don't provide protection from a brain injury. Like they can stop the skull embedded in the brain. But what they do provide is that feedback that says that hurt. Um, Dr. Willie Stewart gave me that great analogy. Because if you bang your head against a bookcase, like it really hurts. If you bang it on with a helmet on, you stop thinking, oh, that really hurts. But you probably wouldn't then continue to bang your head against a bookcase. So it doesn't, you know, and people say, you know, but wearing headgear, that protects it. And it's like, it doesn't protect the brain. It will protect the skull from going in the brain, but it ultimately isn't protecting the brain. And, you know, with that does come a false sense of security because putting armour on, you feel safer. And I think you're more inclined to make those bigger hits because you feel that level of protection. Yeah, I mean, suppose with all those shoulder pads and stuff, you're making hits you would never be able to tolerate without. We've spoken a lot about men and boys. What about women and girls who obviously have very different bodies? How do these issues affect women compared to men? Well, we know that women take longer to recover from concussion on the whole, but most of the protocol is built, you know, for men. There are kind of three most at-risk groups of CTE, and that is athletes, um, military personnel, but also survivors of domestic violence who are kind of left out of mainstream conversation a lot of the time. There are two papers on women with CTE. One was an autistic girl who would hit herself in the head repeatedly. And the other is a woman called the punch drunk wife who was a, well, victim ultimately of domestic violence. And when they looked at her brain, she had exactly the same brain as a boxer who had um, a really severe case of CTE. And I think the thing that's important to note there is the brain doesn't know what's hitting it. So whether it's kind of a boxing glove or a football or, you know, someone 
beating you in the head behind closed doors. It can't distinguish between the two or the three. So essentially, this is exactly the same disease that we're seeing, but there just isn't enough research in women. That's partly because there are less women donating their brains. There's a fantastic organisation called Pink Cushions in the US, started by Catherine Snedeker, that is dedicated to female brain injury across military personnel, athletes and survivors of domestic violence. And they're really kind of driving for more women to donate their brains, also offering resources, information, education, advocacy. But there just isn't enough um, that is being done within women. So we just don't know the extent of those differences. But, you know, if you're a woman athlete and the consensus on concussion from the men you know is, oh, you know, it took me three weeks to recover or whatever. And, you know, you think, okay, fine, like I should be the same. Actually, you might need double that time, triple that time, but there just isn't that information out there yet. Like people are working on it. There are some exceptional researchers within this field, but unfortunately, I mean, like with most medicine, everything has kind of been geared towards men. And why do you think women's brains take longer to recover? I mean, they don't know. It could be because of our skeletal system, our necks. It could be hormonal. I don't think there is a definitive at the moment, but I mean, it needs to be done. And, you know, that is a case of more brains being donated, essentially, so that they can look into it. Yeah. God, it's just it's shocking, isn't it? I mean... <laughs> yeah, it I is. It's, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> and do you think, you know, when, like, you know, women's sport is exploding in popularity at the moment, but often, you know, it's just a carbon copy of the men's game, I'm thinking maybe less of an issue with something like football, but in something like rugby, is there a case for the rules being slightly different? I mean, a scrum is literally just all of the weight is going through a couple of people's necks, isn't it? I mean... Yeah, I remember... Um, Professor John Hardy at UCL said to me that when he saw women's boxing was being put in the Olympics, he just despaired because he was like, this shouldn't be happening. But again, you kind of, you have this culture of sport. You've also got this, you know, anything you can do, we can do too, you know, because for so long it's been... Yeah, I was going to say, you know, I'm sure that, you know, the Nicola Adams or whatever name is won the gold at the Olympics was... Totally. And what an athlete, like what an incredible athlete. But at the same time, you know, if you're on the side of, you know, you study brain injury, you're going, oh no, like as he was, like he was just beside himself and and again so this conversation isn't just scientific it's also kind of cultural societal like historical there's so much that goes into it and it is a minefield but I don't know it's sort of it's essential thanks Hannah we, we, we've got some great questions for you now I'll just start asking them and please keep do asking them away if you're listening um we'll, we've got time to get through quite a few I think sports like boxing where the aim is to punch people in the head until they fall over are these sports just a lost cause on this issue? Like, is there a way to make boxing safe or safer? I mean, just don't hit people in the head. Yeah, that kind of, <laughs> like, that's, that's the definition of boxing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but it's like, you know, well, it depends what you prefer more, like the thrill of watching someone get hurt, you know? Like, that's what it comes down to. But you're punching someone in the head, it's not good. Like, punching someone anyway. Like, if you actually break it down... And you're like, why do we still do this? Like, it's, it is mad that we put this on as a spectacle. But yeah, you know, if you're going to keep punching someone in the head, like, that's a brain injury, you know? That's it. There's no way of getting around it. I suppose it's weird to think that anywhere outside the ring, it'll be a crime. Well, yeah, and actually it was um, Benjamin Robinson's mum who said the way that the boys are playing that day, you take the ball out of it. If you saw that in the street, you'd call the police. You'd be like, these kids are, you know, they've gone mad. They've beating each other up and it it looks insane and yet you throw a ball in and we're like oh don't worry about it it's sport but 
it's not like the brain suddenly goes, oh, I know I'm playing rugby, therefore I'm safe, or it's different now. And it's, again, it's really hard to contend with because we love sport, right? It does so much for us. It, you know, nothing brings this country together like when the England team are doing well. Like, people are happy in London. I live in London. People are not happy a lot of the time. But when England are winning, like, people smile at you on the tube. Like, when the Olympics was here, it was such a buzz for everyone, so you've also got to kind of navigate that elements of it might not be that good. And that's really difficult to come to terms with, I think, for, for everyone, but especially if you're really embedded in sport. So, again, like I said, so many layers to this. And um, we've got a question from Richard here. Are there any non-contact sports which cause CTE? I mean, anything has the potential to if it, there are those repetitive hits to the head. But I imagine, you know, running, for example, you're probably fine. Athletics. Yeah, there's no risk there, really. Yeah, I would say, you know, even when you're running, like, the brain is shaking, but you're not going to run for 14 days in a row. That would be wild. You know, you're going to go home and rest and, you know, the brain is fine. But it is those kind of, again, concussive, but that repetition of the subconcussive and constantly being in play... That is the danger. So no, absolutely not all sports will be, you know, neurodegenerative disease will be prevalent in. But again, it's just being mindful and being safe. And that's not to scare everyone to being like, oh, I must never do sport again. Like, it's absolutely not the case because there's also health benefits of sport, you know. Well, Finley from Brighton says, hi, Hannah, in your research, did you find that the sporting bodies were actively ignoring this issue or are they making effort to address it? I found they were mostly ignoring the issue or placing researchers affiliated with them as leading researchers in this field. And there's been a huge controversy in Australia recently, in particular the AFL, and a guy called Paul McCrory, who was the head of the concussion in sport group. And they basically decide the protocol for concussion across all sports. And, you know, he's called um, CTE a myth. He said second impact syndrome didn't exist, despite kind of plethora of evidence on the contrary. And he has been... Well, he recently resigned due to accusations of plagiarism. Someone actually tweeted it today, I retweeted it, where he'd basically copied this research, like, verbatim, but he'd changed the part where they had said, um, like, research into this area helps. He'd changed it to research in this area has little impact. So I think that was a big thing, is seeing who makes the rules, but then also who they're affiliated with and who pays them. I think now the FA and the PFA have promised things, like Dawn Astor was even working with them last year and they've sort of promised a dementia fund, although that's sort of yet to materialise. But yeah, I mean, there's a litigation against rugby. Things are sort of alluded to and promised, then things are trialled. But right now, I don't think there's any kind of real concrete protocol enforced across the board that acknowledges the extent of the problem, makes it safe for players to go, I need to go off now, or, you know, makes them go off now because they've got a suspected brain injury. And I think that's what does need to happen. And that needs to happen from a government level to sporting bodies. And again, like we said with homework, for so long, sport has governed itself. And that doesn't always mean it's acting in the best interests of players because sport will act in the best interest of itself. We've we've got time for a couple more questions. So... Keep them coming if you've if you've got them. We've got a good question here. How much do you think this comes down to masculinity and and player welfare being a synonym for being soft? Mm, I think there's quite a lot of that, and I think whether that comes from the players themselves or from the fans, I think especially you see it in football. You know, fans think 
they own the game, you know, it's our game. And that's where I think a lot of this comes in and rugby actually like, oh, it's gone soft, it's gone soft. And again, like I said before, this is entrenched from centuries. You know, we could take it back right to gladiators, which I do in the book. And I think that's starting to change. I mean, even down to this idea, like, what is there kind of one gay footballer who has, well, I mean, I hate the expression, come out, but... Well, zero the, in, in England. You know, who's, yeah, but I mean, which we know isn't true. But I think there needs to be a shift in this culture that equates sitting down to recover from an injury as a weakness. And I, I do think that is a big thing to contend with. And I guess, again, that comes down to education. You need spokespeople. You need people to take a stand. Like we've seen it happen before with other things where footballers have come out. Marcus Rashford is a sterling example of everything he does for kind of child poverty and hunger. Like if we had players kind of, you know, stepping forward and acknowledging this and saying we're not going to do that, but they need the backing of the clubs and they need the backing of those that make the rules. Um, but I say that's a huge problem. You know, we, we think the bigger the hit, the more heroic. And again, like, this is a really, really sad thing, but a lot of these players who were so heroic, like, you know, they're in nappies now and that is no life. That is no hero. As a culture, why do you think we, we love this stuff? You know, violence as entertainment. Yeah, it's really interesting. I actually read a good article about this in Science Focus about it's that kind of inherent survival mode that we have. You know, if we fight the best, we're the most intelligent, you know, we've overcome, we've got more skills and we survive in the world when we're faced with kind of conflict. And for some people watching those sports is an extension of that. So you get all of the thrill, but with none of the danger. So that's why it's kind of intoxicating because it taps into that thing we have, like that adrenaline, but we're not facing the problem. And I think, again, like I said, it's tricky with brain injury to put it in the same thing because do we see brain injury as violence? I'm not sure that we do because we don't have that immediate feedback that something is wrong. So, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's so complex I think as a subject I hope I think the book is kind of leveled it out to a kind of human level that everyone could understand that kind of brings the science and brings the history and brings society together but it definitely is more than a book I think it's a conversation and that was my hope and I think we're starting to see those conversations happen but it's a conversation that everybody I think needs to get involved in. Do you think over time sports like rugby will die out as humans understand the damage they do? I don't know and I think it shouldn't be a case of they either change or they go I think you know also kids are like creative they've got imagination you gave them a ball and you said right you can't do this you can't do this find a way I'm sure they'd invent a new sport in like 10 minutes and I think actually things do evolve as we learn different things as you know we become older or better we shift and we change and the world we lived in 20 years ago is not the, the world we lived in five years ago is not the world we live in today and I think actually what Again, it probably would take time, but I think that needs interrogating rather than just kind of seeing it as either, yeah, stays as it is or we get rid of it completely. There has to be another way or other sports might come through that offer a little bit more, you know. We, and I think it is sad to kind of hold on to this thing where actually when you unpick it, you're like, oh, it's literally just, you know, all these men thrashing against each other. Like, I'm sure there's more interesting or exhilarating ways that 
we could enjoy sport. But yeah, I think that needs to be worked out. And I don't think it's sort of an overnight situation, like with anything worth having. So I suppose football's gone through lots of changes, hasn't it, with the offside rule and VAR and all sorts of things. So there's no reason why there couldn't be more changes. I mean, there's no reason why heading couldn't be taken out because it's a game played with your feet. And it's, uh, how does that go down when it's proposed to the authorities? Or I suppose the instinct would be absolutely not, that can never happen. But the more you present evidence of how serious this problem is, maybe that could change. Yeah, I mean, I, f- I feel like the evidence presented is pretty serious. It has been serious for like the last 20 years. So again, like we said, I don't know what it takes. I don't know what it takes for them to really implement that slowly. But, you know, with every kind of heel they drag, every day another player is being announced with dementia. Um, so that's a... Uh sad if fitting way to finish I think so thanks so much to to Hannah Walker-Brown such an important topic I've learned loads from that and her new book is A Delicate Game Brain Injury Sport and Sacrifice 